Hello. Welcome to a new episode of Judge Me by My Cover. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm joined by my co-host Bradley Limer, partner in crime, and we're going to do a follow-up to the last episode where we talked to Richard Turin about fintech development in Asia, specifically about the use of AI and social credit scoring in China. Now, there's a lot of negative press about. What China is doing and using algorithms and using social scoring to basically judge and decide what the citizens can cannot do, where they can go and cannot go. However, in our last episode, Richard argued that we might be having an adverse reaction to it because it's done by Chinese and it's done by the government, whereas hypothetically speaking, what if we are actually doing more in the West? Than what we know of, and what he says makes sense and resonates with us because if you think about it, how much does our phone know about us? We turn it on the minute we wake up. We actually don't turn it off most of the time throughout the entire day, perhaps even into the evening. Every single step of our way, we're leaving digital breadcrumbs. So, what's with our data privacy? What exactly are the big tech doing? With what they know about us, so let's spend the next twenty-five minutes, and we'll delve deep into it with Brett. So, Brett, let let's start talking about AI and ethics, which is like a, a big thing nowadays, right? There's a lot of pushback from the West, if you will,、um, starting from the EU and and now coming from from the US. Is we need to break the big techs up because they they are too big, they know too much about us, and there's a lot of bad. They, They could do without data, and and specifically with AI. What are your views on that? Well, I think it comes down to a question of value exchange for what data you're giving up. the The longstanding argument in technology circles has always been that if you know there's not a cost to something that you're getting in exchange, that you then are the. There's this idea in tech circles that if You aren't paying for something that you then are the product, and in this case, we're talking about our data in exchange for the ability to get information, whether it's news or the weather, or information about where you're visiting.、Um, and the the exchange doesn't feel like it's costing us, but the reality is that when everything is tracked, when everything we do online is tracked, it's basically taken our entire lives and monetizing it. To the value、uh, exchange of which we may not feel like we're getting something in exchange in the same manner、uh, for what these technology companies are, and that's what really is the sticking point, and that's the difference between the different geographies when it comes to data protection. When you think about GDPR and what's happened over the last, you know, several decades around data in Europe, they're trying to protect your personal privacy, and they're trying to make sure that companies aren't simply leveraging that data in order to monetize you. Um, here in the West, in the U.S. at least, we feel a little bit differently and have embraced this idea of open capitalism、uh, at any cost. It seems、uh, to the extreme, and when we see pushback, whether it's because of a data breach or because of the most recent、uh, years or so worth of information about what Facebook has done around manipulation or at least other people manipulating us through channels like Facebook, there's a little bit of that backlash that lasts for a little while. And we don't really、um, see, in the end of the day, any sort of additional regulation or any sort of clampdowns. So that's what's、um, 
sort of fascinating, I think, about what's, what's been happening in the space is that we're not actually seeing more regulation. I think I wonder if part of that has to do with our attitudes towards the data, which you alluded to earlier. And I remember reading something about that where in China, because citizens know that this is happening already. So it's almost like resistance is futile and they just get on with their lives because why not? Right. Look at look at the convenience of it, if you will. It's a trade off right between privacy and convenience is you are giving up the data, whether or not you like it or not. So might as well get some benefits out from it. Whereas I wonder also if it's in the West, like you mentioned, all the negative publicity around Facebook and social media and what they're potentially doing with that data, manipulating our choices. Do consumers actually know the ramifications of it or do they just brush it off because you know there could be people that say well you know so what i'm just sharing my you know my cat's pictures or videos or whatnot on facebook i'm just saying hi to to my friends on facebook so what they know about me or there will be people like well so what they know where i'm going it's the bigger picture that we don't talk about right there was a um Mozilla project that was launched in new york city a couple years ago and, and i remember going through the exhibit And that was one that said, our data makes maps of our habits, actions, and inner thoughts, and who else is on your map. And on there, it was a very visual representation that draws out literally throughout the 24 hours of your life, how much your phone knows about you and tracking everything that you do. But I wonder if consumers actually know about that. Well, even this week, we've seen a lot of um, conversation, I think, in the tech news about the ability to change settings so that you're not sharing particular types of data. And Apple now has, you know, had a field day around marketing, around privacy. And you see so many of their ads now focused on the the differences between um, their phone and your ability to um, protect your own information. But Again, I, I think it's much different than it used to be, say, 15 or 20 years ago. When you think about um, financial data, uh, since we talk an awful lot about what's happening in financial services related to this, back in 98, Gramwich Bliley, um, the regulation that did, among other things, uh, protected the ability for our private financial data to not be shared to third parties without our, our actual permission. Um, back then, it was where are you transacting? Where are you buying things? What are you buying? Nowadays, it's not just what you're spending money on. It's the tertiary data, right? The deeper data of what exactly did you buy at the grocery store? What exactly did you buy at Amazon down to the SKU level? That on top of this idea of Facebook, Instagram, any sort of social chatter, all the things that they're starting to mine for uh, messaging apps and all the rest, all of this is starting to be hoovered up into one large data set by these technology companies. And the difference between the geographies, like you were saying earlier, is that perhaps at a state level, China is using the social score to do things like provide you perks or provide you sort of an hindrance to things like travel. Um, Is it any better 
that we don't know about what our government is doing or what other governments in the West and other countries are doing with potential access to this data? And is it any better that we're leveraging this data through the Facebooks of the world to simply advertise to us better? We don't know what other experiments are going on with this data behind the scenes. And that's the part that's most troubling to me is that now, like you're saying, we have something in our hands most of the day that is sharing data even if we don't interact with it. And that is something that you know, should, should at least cause people pause when they're making choices about how they're sharing themselves every single day. I agree. Recently, there was an article on BBC that talks about the exact same thing, and it goes one step further. It's talking about data that's not just being gathered, you know, to help make our devices work, but also data that's being gathered in the background and what's being used. And apparently, there is a quote unquote second world, if you will. Of, of our digital self that's being used to create some sort of persona that guess, you know, what are the ages of, of the various machines and, and equipment and appliances that you have at home? What are your likelihood to be interested in certain hobbies? What are your interests in, in different marketing campaigns, if you will, um, down to like, you know, what your household would potentially be interested in, not just you, but your entire house, and how you're segmenting. And, and it's really, really scary. The, the article title is, is called, um, Would You Recognize Yourself From Your Data? And, and if you think about it, if you extend everything to it, it's like, oh my goodness, is that, is that really me? And also the more troubling is not only not knowing what data is being gathered about you is what's being done with it, and if there's even any way for consumers, for us, to be able to go and say, wait a minute, this is not right, or this is incorrect data, because it, by virtue of the internet, once something is out, it's out. It is almost impossible to, to correct anything, even if it's a mistake, or even if it's fake news, if you will, you can't really retract it. And, and I guess that's one of the interesting concern, if we're looking, at um, financial services. There are a lot of attempts by different companies, startups, if you will, that's looking at how do we extend our services to demographics that don't have access to credit, for example, right? All of these different methods of alternative lending. For a credit-thin consumer, if you don't have much information about a person in the formal financial services system, what do you do? You go out and you gather whatever data is around that consumer. It could be where the person goes to school. It could be who the friends are. It could be social media, what they post, who they're associated with, who they follow, who follow them. Down to if there is a score of that person as being assigned by the various social media companies or their affiliation with airlines, their status and all of those and, and that gets downright dangerous or a little sketchy, if you will. Um, it's because we don't know what data is being used by these companies. And it's not just about, hey, you know, this will impact how you look like socially, but it could actually be 
factors that determine whether or not you can have access to credit, how much credit you can get, or or, or what's interest rate and all of those. So it, it seems to be a much more dangerous repercussion than it is something that's you know social and and Facebook and what have you. You know, it 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 kind of cuts both ways though. Um, when you think about people that have a thin file or a almost a, a, a negligible presence um, of data going into a credit score, the question becomes, you know, why is it because they've been um, migrating by choice? Have they been forced to migrate between one um, country to another because of a conflict? Is it because they're underbanked or unbanked completely because their um, citizen status is not uh, legitimized by the government. So there, there's good and bad things about using alternative data to provide access to credit. And when you look at companies that are sort of taking a thin file and expanding it to other data sets, like in a firm, which really just takes three or four pieces of information and then matches it to other databases that they have access to, um, the, the question becomes, are they extending credit further than they would uh, without that type of data. And so are they sort of democratizing uh, the ability to have access to financial services because they're using alternatives? That's, that's one way to look at it. But then if they're not pricing it accordingly, is this simply sort of legitimizing a further um, inability for people with lesser means to have access to good rates and to, you know, have cheaper alternatives than, than what they would have in their communities. It's just, it's sort of a conundrum of how do we track what's happening in the industry and how do we ensure that as we broaden who we serve, we are serving people as well as those that are um, say in the 1% or the 10%. Uh, that's where data is interesting. Does data democratize or does data further penalize? Sure, that's from a broader perspective, we're using that ethically, though. I, I don't think there's, at, at least not in the current realm of things that we have, I don't think we have that structure set up. It's still fairly new, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I start to think about, I was just reading an article about how Facebook just recently shut down this private application that they had that was tracking something like 80,000 people because they chose to download it. And what you know they thought they were doing was sharing their Facebook activity um, in a more refined way, and getting something out of it, like a nominal, like you know, amount of money back or something in return. But what they really were doing was taking every single thing they did on their device, every single message they did, every single location that they went to, and all of these things. And the the question around ethics and algorithms, the question around data and transparency, is going to continue to be more and more important as our culture becomes, becomes completely digitally infused. We're already sort of there compared to say 20 years or 10 years ago. Uh, I think it's going to get to be more of a problem. Um, and, and this idea of transparency, again, at the state versus the company level, all comes down to who's monitoring who. You know, we, we can't put the, the black box of, um, algorithms on top of a black box of credit scoring on top of a black box of 
financial uh, decision making by different public and private companies into um, this new world of always on data and expect there not to be disparate outcomes. Um, so that's my biggest concern, I think, about where things are already headed and the way that um, some of these things are, are transpiring. I mean, there's, there's, there's good news and bad news to this story. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. But with every challenge comes opportunity, right? What I, what what is really interesting to watch the development is, um, I guess part of it could potentially be cultural differences. I, I remember I, I spoke in a conference recently about how growing up in Hong Kong, we have always perceived robotics and AI machine, all of these future technology as being friendly to human, as being a a helpful companion, if you will, um, to, to children, to humanity. Whereas, and, and I remember this, when I moved to the U.S., um, it, when you look at machines, you look at future tech, you look at AI, it almost becomes all of a sudden is evil, it's trying to kill you, it's Terminator. It, it, it's, it's interesting to see that very vast cultural differences, um, if you will, when it comes to tech. But I, I, I would like to be an, an optimist and I would like to see the, the bright side of things, right? Because there is a lot of good that can come out that has been coming out from AI. Now, you know, we can say our daily lives is being managed by AI from when you read the news. It's not so much so judged by what you want to see is what machine thinks you want to see is what machine decides that, you know, they want to serve up to you. Same as when we post on social media, and what you see is decided based on the algorithms of the different sites of the different companies. So, but looking back at what we do though, I would like to feel hopeful that AI is helpful to some of the demographics that we're interested in, is that is being able to extend services, like you say, to people that are not served and underserved, is also being able to tackle problems differently than what we had done before. So, you know, one of the things what we always like to talk about is the, the older demographics, right? How AI could be useful to them. Things like that, what Eversafe is doing using technology to fight financial exploitation, like what Peffin is doing AI, using AI to help with wealth management. Those are good examples that we would like to see more of. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to... Um continue the optimism for the future and think that um, our view of current state algorithm and current state data science uh, will lead us to a better place. In terms of financial services, I think absolutely we are going broader and serving more of humanity and their financial needs. The question around transparency, the question around um, the need to have someone policing the overarching um, way that data is flowing through our lives, I think is going to be absolutely a necessity. Question is, again, to your point, 
how much are we going to, as consumers, as individuals, as communities, be part of that question, part of that um, always probing to understand how we uh, are, are being reviewed by these companies and what they're offering us in between. Um, it's an interesting ongoing dialogue, but we need to be engaged. Do you think consumers will be the ones that will be demanding it? Do you think, or do you think could potentially be a good bank come on and say, hey, you know, we're doing this and we want to make damn sure that we are protecting you as a consumer, that we're doing things ethically? I think that people need to pay more attention to the underlying things that these companies are doing. It's like, it's not just, you know, posting a photo and getting to see photos of my friends. It's not just banking somewhere and understanding that, you know, they're doing something for me. It's, it's getting down again to this transparent level of what these institutions, what these companies are doing, not just with our data, but with the money that they're bringing in. You know, it's, it's kind of like you talk about good bank in this model. Um, you, you have large institutions that are trillions of dollars that are loaning out money for lots of different activities, many of which consumers would probably have a problem with, or you know, depending again on sort of your, your view of the world, how we look at our, our exchange of business with a company like a large bank and what we get in exchange for that, we should go deeper. And I think the major, majority of people don't really care. I think the people, you know, they wanna like live their life and they wanna make everything convenient and they don't really care um, about what the companies do with the money they give in exchange for either their data or the, the type of um, activities they do with that business. And that, that to me is, you know, a, a shame. But then again, if everybody was doing that, then we'd probably only have good companies out there. <laughs> that might be too boring, right? But it almost seems like we need to Taking a step back may sound a little drastic, but perhaps we should view things differently, right? Technology is not always the way to solve problems. We need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to humanity. We need to go back to how we think we should operate as a society. And, and I want to refer to a book that I know you and I both like. It's called Team Human by Douglas Rushkov. And in there, there's a quote that, that resonates with me. He said, to a hammer, everything is a nail. To an AI, everything is a computational challenge. But we must not accept any technology as a default solution for our problems. When we do, we end up trying to optimize ourselves for our machines instead of optimizing our machines for us. And whenever people or institutions fail, we assume they're simply lacking the appropriate algorithms or upgrades. It, it, it's fascinating to, to, to read that book, and I'm not completely done with it yet, but there's so many nuggets of it that points to, you know, technology has done a lot of good, but also technology has done things that are not as good. And so to, to remake society, we, we need to bond up together um, as, as human beings. Well, you know, think about, when you were growing up um, in the community that you lived in and how different I think children now uh, experience their communities 
it seems like, you know, we have the ability to be more connected to each other's lives. And yet, oftentimes now we find ourselves in communities where we may not even know our neighbors. Um, we may know, you know, people that we either were friends with years ago or what have you a little bit more. We think we're connected to them because we share pictures or because we exchange messages here and there. But the, the challenge, I think, is in, in really, like you said, understanding things outside of technology. It's not, um, I'm going to talk to my neighbor literally uh, next door to me via my device. It's actually going over there and saying hello and actually connecting with them. Um, that's what's in so many ways really missing nowadays. It's, um, I think there was a book um, that says we're alone together. Um, and I cannot remember how many times we go to conferences where we are either on stage and we look down at the audience, half of them are looking down with their phones, or we're sitting together with friends at dinner and half of us is either posting something, reacting to something on social media where we're literally sitting across from each other. Maybe we should have a rule that we put phones away whenever humans get together. No, I just remember, I forget what movie it was, but there was some um, people like got to this dinner and the first thing they do is like throw their phone in the middle of the table and you think it's because that they were trying to, you know, talk to one another and not be on their phone, but they were actually showing themselves their phones and how like expensive they were. Um, so it was more of a status symbol. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, there's another thing from that book, Team Human, that uh, says here, it says, um, technology may have created a lot of problems, but it's not the enemy. Neither are the markets or the scientists or the robots or the algorithms uh, or the human appetite for progress says, but we can't pursue them at the expense of more basic, organic, connected, emotional, social, and spiritual sensibilities either. We must balance our human need to remain connected to nature with our corresponding desire to influence our own reality. Uh, it's not either or, he says, but a both and. It's not a paradox. And, and that resonates. It goes back to a lot of things that we say. It's not so much so about robots taking our jobs away. It's not so much so about, you know, machines taking, taking over our future. It's more so how do we leverage technology to help us do our job better, to augment our ability, right? So, and, and, and a good example is look at robo-advisors. A lot of them started off with, hey, you know, we're going to do things cheaply. We're going to do things efficiently. We're going to take humans out of the picture. And here you go. And look what happened a few years down the road now, 2018. I would say most of them, if not all, have put the human back into the equation because they realized to serve customers, to serve humans, you can't just have a machine there, especially things around money. Money is very emotional and very personal you sort of need a human in the equation. Now, of course, the human will use tools and all of the advanced analytics capability available to help him and her do a better job. But you can't take the human out of the equation in every single scenario because we are people. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think about the shift in something like wealth management as not necessarily going away from humans, but being more efficient and more transparent about how they make fees. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm connected to you as a human, to a human, I'm your advisor. I talk with you once or twice a year. 
and I'm going to make, you know, 1% or one and a quarter, one and a half percent on your money. Uh, another thing to say, I'm again, a robo advisor, and I'm going to make a quarter point to maybe 40 basis points on your money. I'm not going to talk to you physically. I'm not going to talk to you, but maybe once a year on the phone, but I'm going to add value to your money over time in exchange for your, yes, your ability to call in and talk at any point, um, but to communicate with you every single day about your data, about what's happening in your money, much more so than what an individual um, human could probably do. And so that's, I think, this shift in the model is that we're seeing human and machine working more efficiently together. And it's at those really critical points, especially in the business that we're in in financial services, to reach out when something has gone astray. It's an imperative to remain um, empathetic to a situation and to always be there, not just when the data tells you to be there, but when you know it's the right thing to do. Which brings me to an interesting question that we often discuss is how many times did our bank or credit union miss all of our life's moments, right? Those are the points, those are the points in our lives that you can really make a connection. You can really be helpful, be it, you know, when a person graduates from college, be it the person get married, buy their first house, starts their family, or, you know, to a passing of a family member, to, you know, thinking about retirement, those are all important life moments that I would, I would dare challenge. That's where a lot of times financial institutions needs to be our allies. Yeah, and the data is there to understand when those moments happen. Uh, and that's what's always sort of befuddled me about the financial services industry is that we have access to, um, I think even more pertinent data to someone's lives than what any social feed tells you. Because I think in, in, in so many ways, um, people's social connectivity is an inflated sense of their ego and in a, you know, sort of an inflated sense of, of who they want to be. It's a projection. When you look at someone's financial uh, data over time and you aggregate that across multiple relationships, what you're doing is you're actually talking about their values. Right. So, so I, I, I like to say, you know, show me your wallet and I'll show you your values. It's because the data that's involved in financial transactions really gives an awful lot of insight into who you are as a person, who you are as a family, who you are as a community. And there is a disconnect, I think, between the institution that has this data and doesn't even reach out when it's your birthday or it doesn't even reach out when there's an obvious transaction that is a a large moment, um, whether it's one that is celebratory or one that is, you know, has, has sorrow to it um, because the, the waxes and wanes of our moments of our life is something that financial transactions um, flow through as well. So the other thing I would add to this would be also from, again, Team Human, uh, achieving a higher human value such as universal justice is not a question of engineering. Blockchains and robots don't address the fundamental problem of humanity's widespread refusal to value one another and the world we share. So rather than trying to locate our values in better computer code, we should be turning to the parts of ourselves that can't be understood in those terms. Our abilities as humans to engage with ambiguity, to retrieve the essential, 
and to play well with others. I think that always will come back to something that we like to say is that innovation um, is something that needs to include empathy. It needs to include a human to human understanding of what is going on in an individual's life. What their data is showing us is just one piece of it. We need to be talking to one another and the industry never should give up um, that connection, that uh, humanity that we all share. And so um, on a positive note, I would say that this industry is getting better uh, at driving a broader inclusiveness um, of opportunity. And we'd like to see that more. I agree. So I would like to end it with um, potentially more optimistic notes. So let's share a couple of more quotes that we like from the book with our audience. Here's one that I like. Um, it points more to the human side of things. It says, um, while our minds may be determined to win our agenda, our hearts just want to win over the other person. If we're capable of engaging in a genuine conversation, our common agenda as humans far outweighs the political platforms we've signed on to. This is not weakness, but strength. And that's Team Human. So with that, thank you so much for listening and joining us today. Hope you got some interesting insights from our conversation. So thank you everyone for listening and joining us today. 